Hey guys, great conversation today coming up with Frank Chanchuli. Frank is the owner of Wish Group, which is a collection of businesses in telecom, staffing, digital marketing. Frank invests in real estate and other things. And what made this conversation so interesting for me, you know, the podcast is called Making It, and Frank has definitely made it. There's no question. But even at this point, running a multi million dollar collection of businesses, Frank has a lifestyle where he's frankly out of the office playing golf or, or sailing or fishing 200 days a year, has multiple homes, lives a great life, is very hands off in the businesses, but is thinking about what that next phase looks like for him. Does he want to do something else and make the company you know, five, 10 times bigger? Does he let it ride? And uh, he, we get into that. We get into thinking about once you have made it, quote unquote, what does the next phase look like? And frankly, I think you never actually make it. You just level up and set new challenges for yourself all throughout your life. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation. We get into business strategy. We talk tactics, really interesting stuff. If you enjoy it, leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify. And of course, let me know what you think at Real John Davids on Twitter, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S, hashtag making it. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. We're live with Frank Chinchuli. Thanks for joining me, Frank. Well, thanks for having me, John. So I want to kind of get into your story. You've got this company, Wish Group, um, that is really fascinating. Why don't we just kick off with a quick 60 seconds on your background and kind of who you are and what you're about? Well, I'm, uh, I've been an entrepreneur for 20 years officially. I mean, thinking back probably back to, you know, back to when I was seven years old, you know, shoveling, uh, shoveling driveways and cutting lawns. But uh, yeah, so the Wish Group is my whole co, and um, we've got uh, operating companies, mainly a uh, three space in the uh, telecom, uh, mainly to collaboration, HR, various HR staffing agencies, as well as uh, digital marketing, creative uh, businesses. And I, I basically got started uh, back when I was in university. I was supposed to be a lawyer, but uh, I, you know, one. A particular summer job in uh, teleconferencing. Um, just got really passionate about it. I was good at it. I was having some success, making money while my friends were still in school or you know working minimum wage jobs, and you know I was, I was earning six figures uh, in my early twenties. So I decided that hey, maybe we should look a little deeper into this. And then when I finally got started on my own was back in August of two thousand one, and the rest is history, so to speak. Wow. And so you were you got into the telecom, you said the, the teleconferencing space first? Yeah, traditional, kind of like what we're using here. But back then it was just, uh, you know, phones. Uh, and even before passcodes, you know, if anyone's ever used conference calls where you enter a passcode, even before then, an operator would either uh, call out to you and bring you into the conference call or, or you, would, you would call in and an operator would then put you into it. I mean, I go way back then, right? back to the mid-90s. So what, what was that, that first product? What, what's the origin story? Was it your company you started? Or you worked for somebody? I did. So I got that summer job was for a teleconferencing company based in Toronto. I did, it was just a great first real job, so to speak. You know, it was a real nurturing culture. We did a lot of culture-based things like, you know, family picnics and holiday parties and awards. And that company was then purchased by Bell Canada. So Bell Canada, obviously a very large company. But because most people, when they wanted to set up a conference call, maybe even some companies still do this, uh, would just hit zero. 
and set up a conference call. So Bell, by default, had a very large conferencing company, but it was still such a small piece, not even a piece, it was like a crumb of their pie. But they bought this, this conferencing company that I was working at. So at that point, you know, we thought they would eliminate all of our jobs and what are we going to do? So that's where we're planning to see that, hey, maybe we should start our own conferencing company, just kind of put a more personal touch to it, build a better mousetrap, so to speak. And we, you know, we we come up with different ideas that uh, we really thought would resonate with customers and essentially bootstrapped it, you know, with some friends and family money. It was just a, it was a dream come true. It was a huge success. You know, we, we working hard you, every day. You were in your early 20s when, when, you, when you did this? Mid-20s when I started that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was able to put in a lot of time. You know, I basically ate in the morning till at least eight at night. You know, we, I'd start calling, you know, St. John's, Newfoundland. <laughs> and I would call right to Vancouver till 8 p.m. It was five o'clock th- their time. And then any kind of admin would kind of happen, you know, after dinner till 10 or something. And wake up, do it again. And it paid off. You know, we, and, we and had what that was one of the fastest growing companies in the country. All that fun stuff. Yeah. And, and you were primarily the sales guy, the ops guy. What, what was your strength? Uh, well, I, I came from a sales background. So my official, you know, kind of my role was, was really, you know, running the sales team, recruiting all the sales team, scaled it to, I think, 50 or 60 sales reps. So it was a real sales entrepreneurial call, sales and marketing entrepreneurial culture. We later, you know, developed our own software and that sort of thing. But the company at heart was, was definitely focused on sales and service. And I, and I would say even today, most of our businesses are they're service-based. We don't manufacture anything. And at the heart of them is still driving sales and marketing organizations. And most of our, most of our business is B2B. So we deal with small, medium, but even mainly more enterprise customers. That's, that's in our DNA. And was that first company, was it Wishtel or did it become Wishtel or was it? A no, it was called, it was called Enunciate Conferencing. That was my baby. My first baby, you know, that's like kind of, I feel like my masterpiece, you know, it's the only real company I operated because then after that, I, uh, you know, I was involved. I'm still involved in all the different businesses, but for the most part, I've got amazing, you know, operating partners that run the day-to-day, the businesses. And I focus on strategy, coaching, M&A, M&A type stuff. Yeah. So that, that was uh, Enunstel. And then the first, and then, sorry, did I say it right? Enunciate. Enunciate. I'm sorry. Enunciate. I got, I got yeah. so many names of your companies on my screen yeah. right now. And so let's just talk about the evolution. So most of the time when I talk to people who have Holdco's, typically the evolution is something like, I had a business. It was spitting off a lot of cash flow. I had great operators. I had a lot of time and, and money. And so I decided to build something else and something else. And that's how it spirals. Was that basically your story? A little more accidental. So what happened is when I started Enunciate, and I'm you know I'm I'm banging the phones and selling you know and, and bringing on clients, and then I've got to start building a sales team. So naturally, I start calling my buddies at the old company that I had left, and you know they heard I was doing well, and you know I, I lured them over. There was a cause. It was exciting. It was fresh, and then started hiring my competitors. But the problem is it was a small market. I ran out of people that I knew. I had a friend in high school named John Nally who was in the staffing business. So naturally I said, John, you know, I need to hire some sales guys and service people. And so we just started, you know, scaling the company every month. We had, you know, three, four new starts. And he was so inspired by the success because, you know, he'd come to visit one, actually one day he came to visit me at my office. We were going out for lunch and he, he said, we had just moved into a newer space that we just expanded. And he says, listen, he goes, you really inspired me. I, I really need to start a staffing business with you. And I, and I says, who me? I, I don't know anything about staffing business. He said, don't worry about that. I'll run the business. But if you can help me with the business plan, maybe a little you know, seed capital, kind of incubate me. And if you give me your account, that alone, I know is going to be a lot of cash flow. 
I said to myself, you know what? I know he's good and because he's been servicing me and, and, you know, we go way back. I figured, you know what? If I'm going to be in business anyway, I'm probably going to be hiring people. I guess it wouldn't hurt to have equity in a staffing company. And that's when we started PeopleSource. And then, so like Enunciate was like, you know, one of the fastest growing companies in Canada, best managed, best places to work. I won Entrepreneur of the Year, top 40 and 40, which was great. But PeopleSource is where the light bulb went off because then they had similar success, you know, and, and we start winning the similar awards and John's getting recognized and, and that's when I realized that, hey, building companies is duplicatable. You know, you've obviously got to have the right ingredients. So you have to have, you know, a team that, you know, is passionate and knows what they're doing. But as far as the day-to-day and building the culture and the sales and the marketing, and the finance, all of that is basically the same. So, and then it just kept evolving more internally. It wasn't like we were doing seed capital deals. That stuff, you know, if entrepreneurs come to me and have a great idea, it's not that I won't look at it or do them, but it almost came internally. So one of, for example, another one of the uh, team uh, members of the team at Enunciate came into my office one day, you know, the open door policy and said, Frank, you know what? I like this conferencing business, but I think there's a great opportunity in, in the webcasting, you know, webinar space. And I says, well, I don't really know anything about webinars. He says, well, I, you know, I think if we can launch that as a separate brand under Enunciate and cross out to the customers, I can build it. I says, okay, well, go ahead, get started, get marketing, get some brochures and, and go out there and see how you do. Before you know it, I start seeing 50, 70, 100,000 a month in revenue. Like, oh, I go, we got a business here. So then we, we incorporated that separately as the streaming network and streaming network you know, it was the largest B2B uh, webinar company in the country. We just merged with another company called Webinar.net out of Silicon Valley. We're one of the most fastest growing, most exciting webinar companies on earth. So it's it's more things like that. Same thing with the Mike agency. I got in the digital marketing space. Mike is my cousin, Mike, who used to provide us, you know, creative services. And I says, Mike, why are you working for someone else? Between all the Wish Group companies, I know I can give you a lot of business, plus my associates, plus your own book of business. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll front you. And we started the Mike agency and now we've got a collection of uh, digital marketing agencies as well. Wow. Okay. Um, I've, I've got like, it's, it's more of that questions. It's more within yeah. the family of companies. Cause we'd like to operate. I wouldn't say I'm a private equity guy or a VC uh, necessarily. We but like you, to but, if, get add value. I don't want to just write a check to another entrepreneur. Right? If they're part of the system where if they can cross sell into all, cause you know, between all the different wish group companies, we're, you know, we're looking at thousands of, of corporate clients very happy clients. You know, we've got a whole back office. So if, if an entrepreneur approaches me and, and, and wants to partner and be part of the Wish group, you know, in my opinion, it's a, it's 100% success as long as they know what they're doing. I mean, you know, we've had, I think, seven different uh, Profit Hot 50 fastest startups. We've had five different, you know, uh, fastest growing companies. Um, Wish group has been like, you know, 14 years in a row. But you're, you're sort of in what, what I would call the micro PE space. And maybe like we'll, we'll dig in a yeah. little more. But the micro PE space is very hot right now. It's, I, mean, it's very, I should say it's very trendy right now. I'm not sure how many people are succeeding at it. But a lot yeah. of people are taking a stab at it. And, and there seems to be... So if I kind of um, reverse engineer the, the pattern here, you start off with a teleconferencing service. You go into a video conferencing, or I guess there was a staffing agency yes, in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Video conferencing. And then you kind of, if I'm looking at your um, list of brands here, as you said, it's generally small, medium business or, or enterprise. Uh, you're selling them. Would you describe it as like essential business services? Is that how, yeah. how do you kind of umbrella your your brands? And that's just it. Like, you know, we, we're, we're real student, students of business. You know, I'm also president of Entrepreneurs Organization chapter in Toronto. I launched a couple of different chapters. And so I'm, I'm always studying business and business models. And what every time we would do an, an analysis of, 
whatever company we were working on, it always came down to the critical factors are your communication internally and externally and your human capital, you know, your ability to attract talent and retain them and help them grow. So, you know, the way we basically structured is that all of the wish group companies predominantly help businesses do that, you know, whether it's from our recruitment or to, you know, our communication companies, which are, you know, internal and external communication, and then with the agency. So it's almost like if you're, if you're a client of ours and you embrace all of our services, we'll really help you become a fast growth company as well. And do you have a lot of cross-selling internally? I mean, do you have kind of a formula for saying, hey, here's a client on the conferencing side, let's sell them these seven other products? We do. We do. And we successfully do that. You know, and it takes time. Obviously, you want it all to happen right away, but usually it takes time to build some credibility with one of the companies and then you can start introducing. So, and the, the way we've done that, I mean, there's lots of strategy to do that, but you know, the best way to do that is to build trust amongst the team. So we're, we're big into culture building events. Like we, every quarter we have, well, two of them are, are offsite overnights, bring the whole staff. And then two of them we do virtually like a kickoff in uh, Niagara in January. And then we do a summer retreat. And that's where the different the sales teams and the service uh, departments of the different companies just get to hang out and break bread together and, 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 and learn what's happening in all the different wish groups. They, they get to see, I mean, there's breakouts where they just focus on their own particular companies, but then they're all, they're in the big room where everyone's together. So you get an idea of the bigger, you know, uh, uh, culture and, and wish. So that's where they're, that's where the water cooler talk happens and okay, Hey, listen, you're into PwC. I've been trying to get into PwC. Can you make me an introduction? And then we call them to do that, to make that introduction. Right. And Beyond so marketing you, and communicating. And then and yeah. then we do a lot of client-facing events as well. So what kind of... I, I want to break down because there's a lot of stuff here when it comes to how you manage these companies, how you incentivize people. Let's just go back to, to the beginning here. So you're looking at a potential new business. Are most of the opportunities coming to you today ones that you're actively pursuing or are they is it all, all inbound? Uh, no, I would say mainly inbound, although I'm working on a really, really big deal that I approached them, but uh, kind of, but always related. Like, for example, I just, we just uh, made a, you know, another major investment in a digital marketing agency, but we'd been working them for five years. We've been, uh, we've been outsourcing a lot of work to them from the Mike agency. So then we it, almost like we became family anyway. Same thing where, you know, we're, we're looking at doing a deal, buying a vendor, you know, or this, a vendor, very large company, different business lines, multi-billion dollar. A firm and say, okay, they've got a nice chunk of revenue that you know they don't want to be in that business anymore, and, and it happens that way. Or people approach. So when you start doing a few transactions in a particular space, a space people then know that you're a buyer, mm-hmm. so then they start to approach you. I think every time I've gone looking for deals or forced a deal is when things didn't go so well. You gotcha. Know, I, I learned I learned to practice patience there and let things evolve. Now, when something is good and there's a deal, you do got to kind of act quickly. So and and to, what are you looking at? Are you looking at so what kind of metrics are you looking at? The internal rate of return, the cash flow, just the profitability. Like what 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 are the metrics that you say? Okay, this is a business that we purchased and it's doing very well. Well, I like to see that if it's going to just be a natural fit, like it's got to be a creative. Like it's more of a like a kind of a roll up. We get a lot of synergies. Not that we're looking to get rid of staff, but I mean, if there's some key people, it's always great. Type of businesses, type of clients. First thing I almost inherently look at is, you know, who are the clients and can we cross-sell into them? Because that's where we can get more value out of the transaction. Culture is important too. You know, when I get a feel for it, are they going to fit? Do they do things the way we do it? Now, sometimes even if they're not, that's not a bad thing. If the clients and the employees will get a much better experience, that could be very positive. But it could also go 
the other way, you know. And so, and and do you have financial? I was having a conversation with uh, Jim Pattison, who of course has rolled up, you know, b- billions right. in companies, and he was actually he's an incredibly metrics-driven person in the sense that he says it's got to have this cash flow in this period of time. And if it doesn't, we get rid of it. And I'm sure there's more under the hood in terms of culture and synergies, yeah. but it's a very financial metric. Are you are you that focused or are you more um, no. accepting of a company as long as it delivers in other ways? I So I'm more, I mean, you know, Jimmy's kind of like, that's the guy that I want to model. I mean, very <laughs> micro micro uh, size version of, of, of the Patterson group, but that kind of model, right? Diversified for the most part, own most of the businesses. I guess the difference would be I like I like the management teams or at least the uh, partner to have equity, but you know in our, in our case we're a little bit more value buyers, you know, so almost more fixer upper, so it's it's a little different, you know, where he's buying you know large apartment buildings or large or large commercial office buildings. I'm I'm buying you know you know the worst house on the street. <laughs> you know, but I got to be TLC, honest. Yeah. I get a big percentage. Uh, so I might buy a company that's not being run efficiently. That's maybe doing four. You know, I, I might buy it at four times EBITDA, but then I know once we roll it into our company and get all the synergies and the growth, I can pay it off in a year. Yeah, but but what you're also describing. I mean, he's been doing this probably for forty years <laughs> after you know Longer. past yeah. you. But but you know the description of the deal that you just said. I mean, um, Jim uh, Patterson told a story where he. Bought, I forget the name now, but it was a grocery store chain, you know, decades ago, and he bought it because nobody else wanted it, and it was for sale at a bargain basement price. So it is about finding something that you see value in that others potentially don't. Now, you also told a story a second ago about how someone came into your office and said, "Hey, I think that this web conferencing thing makes sense." In that situation, how do you structure that? Are they do they become the founder? Are they a shareholder? Are you funding it? How does that look? Yeah, so we've so Wish Group usually funds all all new ventures or you know through the through the cash flow, um, and it, every deal is a little bit different, you know, depending on. So in that case, let's say okay, he's a he's a young guy, he wants to step up, I give him a chance to run the company and potentially be the president. You know, start usually don't start off with president's titles, but sometimes do, uh, depending on the situation. And you know, sometimes they have some capital they want to actually put in if there's you know. But I, I've given away equity for free. It's usually not worked out well. Like if they're if they're not a bit of earning it to some extent, it's just not they don't respect it as if it's their own. But at least stock options at bare minimum, almost like phantom shares. Like I mean they're they're treated as equity, but they don't have to worry about capitalizing the business if it needs to be because they just don't have it. Right. Yeah. But they're that, equity, right? I'm maybe not paying them a huge salary and you know as in exchange yeah. for, for a piece of it. But they've treated like their own. That's the critical. It's not going to work otherwise. Because they have to steward it. I, I totally agree. I've seen the, yeah. the you know, you give somebody equity for free and it feels like nothing. It, it feels almost like it's actually allures because they feel like the equity is worthless. If there's some yeah. dollar amounts or some work attached to it, some, you know, earnings targets, that makes a lot of sense. But as you said, you're not operating any of these businesses. So you really have to rely on these people to, to give it their all. I do. And that's, that's why I need the entrepreneurial mindset. I, 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 I'm not at the stage... I don't know that I ever want to be at the stage where they're all hired president president teams and you know like it's all owned by me. I mean, I know that you can get to that point if you've got a lot of capital and you're buying, you know, well-established businesses. But I don't know. I, I just I still love the earlier stage, you know, and but that keeps going up as as obviously become a little more successful and wealthier. Where before you only buy, you know, companies that are two to five million dollars, and now we're looking at buying fifty million dollar businesses. So, you know, creeping up, but I just something about 
I like to say I'm not a, I'm not an artist, but I'm definitely creative. And for me, my canvas is building that business. Like nothing gets me more excited than watching a business. There's nothing like a company. I mean, you know, I, I hear about real estate and crypto and all this stuff. And obviously, I've got a real estate and I've got investments, but they're and land's great. Don't get me wrong, but it's not alive. It's not. It, it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't evolve the way a business does. The business is a group of human beings, you know, like even if a company actually doesn't make money, but it breaks even, you're still creating a ton of value. Hundreds of people might be, you know, gaining employment from it. Clients are getting value, suppliers, you know, so the ripple effect of, of a company, there's nothing like it. And, and, and that just really gets me excited, especially, you know, and it's almost like an addiction when you get a real, you know, real flair, a real you know, fast growing firm. And that's what I'm always chasing. So my first company was very, very successful, very quickly. I mean, we made seven figures profit our first year. Uh, it's unheard of. And we just did that again. You know, we started a healthcare staffing company last year that, I mean, I've had some great startups and this thing is exceptional. Are you mostly starting these businesses from scratch or are you buying and then fixing? It's a combo. Like actually that one really was from scratch, but we actually did buy a very small firm just to get us going at like, you know, three, four employees and very small revenue, but it started it. At least we had someone to something to build from, but it was mainly a startup and it's a combination. Sometimes we'll buy a very small company. Like I'd gotten the wireless space back in 2009 and bought, you know, a pretty well-established corporate bell dealer and and we grew that and sold it. Like, so it, it depends, but because we like to put so much fuel on the fire, they always still feel like startups, if that makes any sense. How, so how are you financing all these? Are you mostly, is this mostly off your own cash flow? Is this uh, bank debt? Is it uh, v- vendor take backs? What, 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 where's the capital yeah. coming from? I'm, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one thing I'm working on. For the most part, it's all been self-funded. So from the cash flow, from the Wish Group operating companies, my personal investments from some of the exits. Yeah, well, and there's acquisitions. We've, we've used some like senior debt. Um, some bank financing, um, and uh, yeah, when we can, a, a BTB, promissory notes, that sort of thing. But you can only get so big that that way. But been able to do it. You know, hopefully we're in a position now that if we have to make a, a more sizable acquisitions, we're still in good shape from a bank financing perspective. But no, I haven't uh, gotten into any uh, funds like sub debt or through private equity. I don't really like outside investors, although I've always made money for my shareholders and I pride myself on that always. You don't like outside um, investors? I'm, I'm curious to, to dig into that. Why, why don't you like outside investors? Well, if there are, like, cause I'm looking at some, some deals now with, I like, I li- I'd like an operating partner investor. That's different. Like if I have a, let's say a competitor and we're both, you know, want to take a leap and buy someone larger together. I prefer that I, I, I as opposed to just outside capital. I mean, I sh- it's probably just because I haven't taken the time, taken the time to really go and investigate that and run with that. But I, I'm, I'm sure I'd be a lot wealthier and we'd be a lot bigger if I did. So I, I should. I think you're doing um, okay, Frank. I think you're but, doing but, yeah, fine. But we don't see. We don't do things where we go get growth capital. We say, okay, I need to raise a million dollars because we want to, you know, uh, add more salespeople and marketing. If any time I really, I like to do it through acquisitions and, and finance it that way. So so far we've been able to do it. But if it's a, you know, if it's a large enough deal. And, you know, we're not comfortable or we don't have enough funds, then I'm, I'll be forced to do that. But so far, we've been, for the most part, self-funded. Self self yeah. 
So one thing I love to do on this show, and you're like the perfect guy to do it with, is I love to dissect business models and just figure out why something worked. So one thing I find, and, and the reason I think a lot of entrepreneurs, once they get something right once, oftentimes they'll start investing or acquiring is because getting something right, as you said, going from like zero to a million in the first year in profit mm-hmm. is actually really, really hard. Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter how good you are. There's a lot of factors that have to line up. So let's take one of your businesses. It can be an unsaid, it can be whatever you want it to be. And let's just reverse engineer a little bit, kind of the factors that made it successful. The, the fast growth ones all have the same formula. And, and, and there's a lot of people that always try and resist it that don't find success, even when you, when I prove it right in front of them. I've got five, six companies in one under one roof, let's say. And one of them is absolutely rocking and rolling. And people are doing things the right way and it's killing it. And another company is not. And they're still fighting me and not believing, even though it's happening right in front of their eyes. <laughs> so <laughs> the formula is the same. And I don't right. care whether it's 100 years ago or today, I still believe it's the same. The approach might be different, like sales, for example, are different today than they were 10 years ago. But the same intensity, the same sense of urgency, the same. The difference between human beings and companies and anything in life is how efficient they can be. You can look at a job and say, oh, painting my house should take you know, 20, 20 months. Well, says who? Who's in there doing it? If you have a real master, he can do it in two days. Poor people that aren't good, I mean, not poor financially, but poor, poor people that aren't good at what they do or are lazy or don't have passion or are skilled, they just always focus on what, how, how you know, the obstacles where someone very efficient is just focused on the prize and the positivity and have a sense of urgency. And, you know, I keep hearing, oh, you got to work smart, not hard. No, bullshit. You got to work smart and hard. You know, I don't know how you can get very successful to start up phase if you don't have a certain amount of urgency and you can't have money flowing everywhere. These companies that raise lots of money and got priceless works of art on the wall, they're not even turning a profit yet. I don't know how that works. I'm sure I'm wrong. I'm sure there's some Silicon Valley tech companies that have made that model work. But I've also read somewhere that statistically, most even of those Silicon Valley private equity backed uh, startups where the founder has too high of a salary, even over 100,000, like 90% of them fail. Yeah, I mean, so Silicon Valley. You need is, to be is, lean and mean and hungry, in yeah. my opinion, in the startup. Te- tech, te- tech startup investing is generally an industry of failure where the exception is what we all see, but the exceptions yeah. are not the norm. And, and by the way, everybody knows that. I, I had a, a VC on the podcast the other week, John Ruffalo, who said, We make 10 investments. We know nine are going to fail. That's the plan. And the one is going to pay for all of them and then some. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's kind of the way it is. So you took, but, so, but I find that space gets all the attention, right? That's why I have a, my, my own little video, uh, not podcast, but well, kind of, I'd interview people and it, it was called the bootstrap. You know, it's uh, basically secrets for the self-funded entrepreneur, because what I'm finding is most real, like not real, but most entrepreneurs are not tech startups doing series A, B and C. They're just bootstrapping, trying to make, make ends meet, or I even, it's applicable even if you're a real estate agent or, any kind of independent contractor, you're really in business for yourself, even if you're a wealth advisor or insurance broker, mortgage broker, you know, running a coffee shop, uh, running a, you know, a small, medium-sized entrepreneurial company, you've got to, I mean, there's, there's, there's ways to, you know, to, to kind of stretch the dollar. There's, there's, but the culture has got to be right, you know, and, and it's got to, it, everyone's got to put a hundred percent because it, it, there's everyone that goes to work in an office every day, puts in eight hours, but there's ones that beyond even putting more than eight hours, they're incredibly efficient. I see guys that'll come in the office, they'll open up their computer, check their email, look at, you know, look at the sports scores. Then they got to go watch their coffee brew, you know, and, and yap, 
yap in the coffee room for 30 minutes. Then they're going to go maybe make a phone call. Then it's smoke break. Then it's downstairs for, you know, one of 15 smoke breaks. Watch a guy who's really hungry, a dog in heat, you know, oh, yeah. boom, just pounding the phones, pounding the phones, pounding the phones. Oh, 70, 80 calls a day is a lot. Do the math. I can do 25,000 hours if I need to. I can do 200 hours a day if I need to. Yeah. You know, oh, nobody's answering the phone. It's okay. Voicemail. People listen to our voicemails now. So there's always a solution for the winners, you know, for the guys that make things happen. I mean, I hate, I, I use analogies of, you know, dating, you know, like maybe old school dating, like going to bars, you know, the, it's the ones that were making a noise and getting on the dance floor and drinks at the bar, exciting versus the guy who's holding up a wall in the corner. That's boring. Nobody wants that. Doesn't go talk to anybody. The guy who's even not good looking, but he's talking to everybody. He's saying hello to every girl, maybe failing like the VCs, right? Maybe seven out of 10, eight out of 10, nine out of 10 girls don't want anything to do with them. All he needs is one. That's, that's all it takes. So let's, uh, let, let me go back here. So uh, you're a couple of buzzwords. So I heard efficiency, urgency, culture, hundred percent. Those, those are necessary. And what you describe about the person who, you know, gets in, checks their computer, goes on a smoke break. I've seen the difference. And by the way, I've seen salespeople in particular who once they make a few sales and they're good, they get really lazy. And I see the other people who, once they make sales, they get re-energized. They want to go even harder. And that's the person you want. You want the one who, you know, when you set the target of 50 dials a day, they do 200 dials a day because they're, they're, they're going to smash it. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper. And the reason I say this is because what, what I found is that you have a business that does well. And yes, you have the personalities, you have efficiency, you have urgency. But I got to imagine there was something about the time you got into the market and the response that customers were giving you where you were just hitting these deals. What, what was it about the product market fit when you got in with, uh, with, with that business? There wasn't any business. And this is what people keep saying this. People say, oh, Frank, you got lucky at the timing. Okay, well, let's go back to 2001. Look all, at all the different companies that, in my space that all should have had the best timing as I had that got started. And most of them, if not all of them, are doing revenue today, 20 years later, that I did in my first year. So same thing I can say about Priority Healthcare that we just launched. 20, it'll do $40 million in its third year. You know how many healthcare staffing companies there are that barely do a million dollars? So that started 20 years before we did. So I don't believe in that. I believe in that to some extent. You know, it's easier to sell conferencing 20 years ago than it is today with Zoom and Teams and all this stuff. But no, it, it's all momentum is key. And you even touched upon it about the sales rep that, you know, wins a few deals and gets lazy. That is one thing we always preach when someone does start getting some success. It's like, you got to strike while the iron's hot. You're confident, you got energy, and that's why you got to create that. You know, the sales reps just milk the same, and companies, not just sales reps. Because sales, I think, is a microcosm of like one sales rep is like a micro version of the, of the whole company. Ultimately, it's the same thing. A company that has lots of prospects and lots of people calling them, they're too busy to chase. At that point, like the guy in the bar, he's got a lot of action going on. He's confident. He, and they can smell the confidence from them versus the desperate guy. Nobody likes dealing with a desperate person in any, when you're buying, when you go to a car dealership and you buy from someone, when the deal sounds too good to be true, desperate versus the guy just got all kinds of action on the go. A company is the same, is the same thing. You've got to create momentum. That's why you got to be lean and mean and hungry in the beginning. It all really happens in the beginning and then it starts to domino from there. I'm not saying you can't turn it around, but if you have a company that just doesn't start right, if you don't get it figured out in a year or two, it probably won't ever. 
Yeah. I, as I, you know, I look at your collection of businesses, especially under the communication space. And what's funny is if I didn't know you, if I never heard of this company before, I would look at that and I would go, man, this guy is, uh, you know, uh, asking for, uh, asking to be killed because we're in the age, as you said, of zoom and teams and everything. And here you have this business that's thriving in a business that you, in an industry that you would look at and say, well, this is too competitive. Don't be in it. This guy's yeah. doing incredibly well. So those things that you mentioned, those values actually work. Every, I keep saying, every, I'm not an inventor entrepreneur. I go into spaces, very established space, spaces, very mature businesses, and I, I find a niche and I can strike. And there's a lot of, and so, oh, there's big players. You got to, you know, in, in the staffing, you've got multi billion dollar global firms. Same thing in the telecom space. I'm, I'm competing with Zoom and before that, the Bell Canadas of the world and the Verizons and say, well, if they're in the space, there's money to be made there and maybe they'll buy you. But no, I, I've always, even a, even a sunsetting mature business, there's opportunity there if you know how to buy right and you do your job well. I mean, I was just joking about this. I was having a conversation earlier this morning where we talked about you know like technology. It says, you know what? I bought a company, uh, a US-based company about three years ago. And, and you know, I, I obviously review the financials every month. I don't know. It was four or five months ago. I looked up. I'm like, what, what is this revenue stream here? I said, backs blasting. And we're doing like 100000 a month in revenue, making like 20000 25000 a month in backs blasting. I asked my CFO, like, what is that? And the president was running that company. He's like, you know, like fax blasting. I'm like, what, is, what do you mean fax blasting? Well, you ever go to your fax machine? I'm like, I haven't touched fax machine in 20 years. But if you ever go to your fax machine, you see crap in the morning, like paper. Like, that's what we do. Like, we do 100,000 people do that amount of fax blasting still. You know, like. Half the audience I'm right sure now I'm is, the is Googling what a fax machine is. <laughs> they have no idea what a fax I'm machine sure is. I'm sure I'm not the biggest in the fax blasting space. Um, so people still do fax blasting, you know. So. You know, like even conferencing is a mature space. But I mean, I, I really, my my goal, what I've been speaking lately is I'd, I'd love to be, because that was what I started. And uh, Zoom and Microsoft Teams have definitely you know done some damage in that space. But I, I want to be in the traditional conferencing. I want to be the largest in the world, even if I'm the last one standing, because I know we'll do well and we'll provide value to the people like still use that service. Same thing as staffing, very mature space. Oh, Uber's going to replace staffing. Okay, maybe. I, yeah. I don't I don't. But even if it does, I don't think that's going to happen overnight. Taxis still exist. Right. So let, let's look at that. So I'm looking at your human, at your human capital group now, Priority Healthcare, uh, People Surge, People Store. So this is a service. So let, let's just look at these two things separately. So the communication firms that we've talked about so far, I'm guessing those are mostly software recurring revenue type businesses. Yeah. Yeah. This is, these are service businesses. Are there distinctions between how you look at a, a software tech business versus a service business? Or do they run differently? Do you think about them differently in any way? Those two actually are very, very similar. The only difference is in, instead of sell, selling access or a license to you know something like we're, what we're using here, like a webinar or a conference call bridge, you're essentially matching up you know employees with em employers. So the biggest challenge with the staffing space is that your product is people and people can be unreliable. <laughs> you know, There's a lot of emotions involved. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. Where if I sell you an Apple cell phone, eh, it's going to work for the most part. But the, the approach is the same. You're, you're, it's, you're still selling. It's still the service. Like we're not manufacturing either. Or you know, things can change. You know, companies that usually use a certain amount of, of people might you know go up or go down, but they usually won't. I mean, yeah, companies can go bankrupt as well. But for the most part, if if you know, Lynn Chocolates, for example, when when come Q4 when they get geared up, and then again in the, in the spring, uh, and, you know, Valentine's and, and Easter, when they really spike and they need five, seven thousand people, 
that's pretty similar every year. So we can kind of count on that. Interesting. So where the communication business would be actual long-term recurring revenue type businesses, the human capital is a little more transactional, but you can rely on those repeat clients because it's a fairly predictable hiring schedule. You got it. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, if they if they land, you know, clients land a big contract, they might need more people. And sometimes the opposite. HBC is a good example of that. They introduce a lot more automation in their warehouses. Um, so slowly over time, you know, they they needed less less people every every holiday season, but they still need people to, mm-hmm. to manage the peaks. So they they're not going to have most companies can't they won't staff to their peaks, right? Because they depending on the kind of industry there are, or even IT, you get people that got to you know, they need a team to develop a a piece of software or they have a project. So they're not going to hire full-time staff for that. I mean, some people just don't want them on their payroll, whether it's hiring freezes, you get that with government or, you know, we take on the risk of the, you know, the, the burdens of the WSIB and all that sort of fun stuff. Yeah. What do you do at Wish Capital? What's, what's that about? So Wish Capital was structured uh, essentially, you know, as a, as a division to do, I mean, it's not active really, but when we're going to kind of formalize my, like a family office and potentially create a fund to invest in, 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 in the startup companies. I like the name, I kept it, but it's not actually active. It's great. It's a great name. I don't know. I feel, I feel like you're dancing around this opportunity to really be the, the, the private equity or the micro private equity guy in certainly in telecom conferencing service businesses. I feel like there's a lot of white space there. It's funny you say that because that's my, you know, if I'm sitting on, uh, you know, in, uh, lying down on a sofa in, a, in, a, in, a, in an analyst's office or when I'm talking to, you know, associates about the struggle of just, you know, golf, I like to be on the golf or on the, on the water 200 days of the year, but I also know I'm capable of, of being a lot more successful, but I've, I've also just realized that, you know, I'm in a stage in life where the kids are young that I, I like, I don't, I want as little stress as possible, but I'm also a very competitive guy. And my biggest pet peeve in life is underachievement. So I know I'm capable of, as far as a lot more of creating wealth, but understanding how to define wealth, you know, and, and is that making sure I, I foster friendships and spend time with my family. So, yeah, I know that I, I do believe that Wish could be, you know, a, a billion dollar company within three years if I wanted it to, if I brought in outside capital. And then, and I speak to advisors and people in the financial markets and it's funny, some of them are like, yeah, you could, you should do it easily. I mean, even though you're in boring businesses, they spit out constant dividends. There's a lot of investors who would love a guaranteed, Eight ten percent return in, yeah, in private right companies, here. yeah. And then I've, and then I've got guys that say, Frank, I know billionaires that don't live as well as you. Like as far as peace of mind and freedom, and you know, just it's all it's as simple, and you got it. And there's cash flow. Like why do you, why bother? And especially if I'm I'm a very simple guy. You know, I was brought up frugal. I guess I, I, not cheap. I mean, I don't live cheaply. I've got lots of lots of toys and lots of properties and all that stuff, but. I would say I don't like waste. I can't. I'm the guy that prints on both sides of the paper in the office. <laughs> like, get all those junk faxes that come in. Let's turn them over and put them back in and right. print on the other side tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I just can't handle waste. You know, I'm not, so it, it's hard for me to spend money. I have to kind of self-justify it or reward myself. I'm, I'm getting better. I mean, when I sold an unsaid, I didn't do anything. I just kept building businesses, and it was a different time. But then I started realizing, you know what? You do gotta, you do gotta treat yourself. Life is short. You never know. You got to smell the roses along the way. So I struggle with that, John. It's interesting that you picked up on that. Well, as, the, uh, the interesting thing is, and you just hit on it also, you you make one... So there's there's different... I think about having money or having wealth in different stages. So there's having enough money 
to pay your bills and live comfortably. And that's number one. And the second phase might be you pay your bills, you live comfortably, and you actually live maybe a bit excessively. You can buy a couple houses, you can take more trips. Yep. And then, you know, maybe there's one or two stages after that. But at a certain point, you get yeah, past the steak the, only tastes so good. Well, yeah, Why exactly. We- and 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 how many how many trips do it you know to the Caribbean do I need to take? But at the end of the day, at a certain point, you become a capital allocator, and you say, okay, this is the most money I'm ever going to spend on myself or my family in a year, and every dollar after that is really just going to invest to create more capital for the next generation. And it sounds like, and and I I, I agree with you. At that point, the question becomes, do I want this headache? Do I do I feel yeah. like doing this? So I'm finding that even with things, right? Like, so I'm just looking at, you know, we just bought a lake house too, a year ago and renovating that. And like, how do we even get around to all these places? And it's like, I'm looking every day, I'm paying bills. So you hire someone, hire someone. Of course you can hire someone, but that's not any easier. By the time I can explain everything that needs to be done, things breaking at all the property cars. Thank God I have my father to come service these cars. (laughs) Like when you have multiple cars, they all need oil changes. They all need to be serviced. You know, things happen. It's like, oh, I'm just working. For, I bought a boat a couple of years ago. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is, a, does it ever just run properly? So I, and even the kids, okay, life insurance, all this, everything we got here, I'm thinking, well, what, I think there's this inherent, oh, I got to service them. Yeah, but hopefully I'm going to be you know, 100 years old one day and my kids will be 75. They really need to worry about giving, I, I don't know. I mean, I understand the multi-general wealth and I just like, I just really like the freedom's important. I like the point where, you know, I'm looking, I'm not looking at the right side of the menu, though I can't help myself. I still do. <laughs> not because I can't afford it, just because I want to find the deals. I'm not going to overpay for something. But I, I just did already get to the point where, okay, you buy the fancy sports cars, you drink really nice wines, and you get to a point where, you're like, okay, after about $100, wine's a blur just because you can. That's why there's a market for it, because there's people that will spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine is is the only reason why the bottle is worth that because it's not worth it. It's just, even like if you look at high luxury brands, you know, ask anyone that knows. And if you look at the most expensive Hermes purse, let's say structurally, like, well, first of all, functionally, well, structurally to replace it without the brand, without the fancy logo is about a $500. Let's say go to Italy, find a good, a really good maker, find the best, the identical materials It's 500 shouldn't be $5,000. Functionally, five cent grocery bag does the same job, carries <laughs> items in it. So, so as tell, I realized, tell my wife I said, that. so why push? Why push if it, I, I'm at the point where I'm happy to create more wealth if it comes without too much grief. I hear you. I hear you. Well, if you, you know, it's funny. If you look at the highest levels, and, and I'm sure there are lots of bumps on the way, but the way you have structured yourself, and I want to ask you one more question about how you actually run these companies, but the way you structured your life at this point sounds to me like you've got a pretty hands-off ownership approach. You're not an operator. And I would say if you were to escalate this and say, okay, I want to go for the next stage, maybe that's a billion or 500 million or whatever, there'd be a whole lot of bumps there. And then when you plateaued, you'd be exactly where you are right now, which is you'd just be sitting on top of a larger mountain, but living pretty much the same life. What's that, what's that story where, the, where there's a guy uh, you know, on an island fishing, just enjoying, and you know, there's a wealthy entrepreneur or banker on that island observing him going, why are you expanding? Why don't you do all this? And he's like, well, why do I need to do all of that? <laughs> and then he does. And then he builds his whole business only to then retire and do what he was already doing. You know, so <laughs> he, he lands on the, on the same beach, the story, just, it's a great story. It goes yeah. like seven times. And then when he's yeah. finished the whole thing, he's right back at that same back beach to where he was. Going, I'm doing the same thing you are. 
<laughs> so I, I use my ego, like I think a lot of guys should, to create wealth, right? Like just really fuel me whether I wanted to win awards or mainly to earn the respect of those I respected. So yeah, you keep wanting to hang around other wealthy guys because they push you. But you also, you know, you also got to make sure that the ego doesn't drive everything. So it's like, okay, if I do I want this vehicle or do I want this fancier house for me or to show it off to my friends? Right. So again, if if a bunch of money lands on our lap and thankfully, God willing, we're continuing to be successful or buy a great a company at a great value and it's spitting out tons of cash when I have to use this money. Yeah. Well, I top up things and when I want something, treat myself. Sure. But when you have multiple properties and cars at all the properties and beautiful furnishings and great friends and great businesses making money without any stress or major grief and no shareholders to report to, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 49 now. So like I said, I'm, I'm on either my lake fishing, the ocean fishing, or at one of either golfing in Toronto or here 200 days a year. So that I don't want to give that up. Unbelievable. So let, let's talk about how you actually manage. So like when you are working, what, is, what does work look like for Frank? Are you looking at financial statements? Are you in quarterly meetings? What are you doing? Yeah, a combination of that. So I always make myself available first and foremost to, to the, to, I'd say the presidents or even the management teams of the company. So these guys know what they're doing, but I know what it's like where you just need to talk to someone. And even if it's 12, one in the morning and they reach out to me, I'm there like a coach. Even coach is a strong word, you know, just sounding board, I think is, is more, is the better. Just been there. I've walked through the minefield. I know what they're going through and, and we can strategize together and just make sure they're ready to go back up, wake up in the morning, get ready to go fight another, another battle. So there's time for that. Uh, then, I, so then I have structured meetings with those individuals a week where it's formal, where we have a half hour call and just recap, recap top three quarters of the week. Then I would say mergers and acquisitions. So at any given time, we've got three, four deals in the go. We, close an acquisition November 1st, another one, uh, December 31st, another one, uh, January 1st. And this other big one that fell apart on us a couple of weeks ago, hope, hopefully is going to be closing in the next couple of days. And then I'm working on another one. So I'm always, so there you're dealing with legal, you're dealing with accountants, you're dealing with the management teams to understand and, and finance and, you know, make sure what it's going to look like post-closing. So that stuff takes a lot more time than I thought. As much as you want to close the deal quickly, it's tedious. It's tedious work. It takes time. Um, managing that. That's pretty much it. And that, but that I'm always kind of working, but not. That's why I love the life I've created. And what forced me to do that is when I decided to, to be a snowbird. And at first I was worried about not being in the office, what would happen, but it actually the business has started to accelerate and grow even quicker because at that time it forced the presidents to just be on their own and, and not have Frank there every day. And, Isn't it uh, unbelievable, Frank, how that happens? I, and every time I talk to somebody who's moved from that operator to just true owner, every time to their own shock, and this shows you just how big our egos are, we think it's going to go downhill and it gets even better when we just remove ourselves. Yeah. So now if I have to jump in and if I want to actually do a company, operate a company, I don't know how I would pull that off necessarily. Because <laughs> uh, a lot of the, when I do see like, because I've got partners that have, are kind of like me, except for they like being in every day and they like still working hard and being in businesses. And I just see like, even what John's doing a priority, he's not in the business. He's not operating the business, but he's the first one in and last one out every day still. And he's there for the team and he's setting the pace and he's keeping them positive and he's walking back, managing by walking around. So that that's that coach. You know, I, I, I wouldn't be opposed to getting my hands dirty again. Like I start thinking about my son's, you know, is 13. So he's still years away, but Hey, you know, if he decides he wants to start a company or be involved in one of the startups or, you know, then would that maybe get me excited about being, 
in an office every day again? Maybe. So who knows? We'll see what we'll see what the future holds. So two, two more tactical questions for you. Do you within your uh, your companies have shared services? Uh, it's, does everybody yes. operates siloed or okay? So when you bring a company and you start a company, there's IT legal accounting. That's all the same team. Yes, that's all shared. That's but all every shared. company's got its own kind of operations and sales teams. Has that ever gone wrong? Because I talk to people who, who let's say they bring a company in yeah. that already has their own whatever, their own payroll, their own this, that. You try to mess it up. Has that ever gone wrong for you? Yeah, maybe just on the staffing side, just because you know I already had this finance team and then it's okay, John, why don't we just use my finance? They didn't really understand it well and they were reporting to me and then John needed that that connection. So we said, it's not worth it. Let's just, you know, let's kind of split the financing out because it's more, it's more involved than staff you're dealing with payrolls and submissions. Anyhow, but yeah, I watch that every time. Let's say we do a merge or an acquisition. You just try to stay ahead of the time saying, listen, this is my finance team. We, you know, we got to do the books. It's just what works. But that being said, you merge with a company where they have two or three people in finance and maybe that one or two of those functions is necessary and we like them and we'll bring them on, on board and expand the shared services. But that's where that's where you, the economy of scale kicks in. A lot of these companies are hurting because they're stuck to a lease, they're stuck to an expensive finance from IT resource where it's like once they just even just join forces. I've had companies that essentially we take on an equity position and say we become 50% owners, they move into our office, rent's gone. All of a sudden our CFO is doing all their finances, That's that's gone. Their IT costs gone. They, they, they're sharing all of our licenses that we've already negotiated quickly on buying power. So it's like, even if they do nothing differently, but just taking me on as a partner, all of a sudden, you know, the P&L looks so much stronger. Right. So th- there are definitely some financial benefits, or I mean, I wouldn't say that you're necessarily doing a lot of financial engineering, but just the natural things that happen. Hey, we already use Salesforce. We already use yeah. this and that. So you don't need to pay for your own license. I'm, so the reason why I think it worked out well for us, and I can see where it doesn't, because even I've watched when we've kind of teetered on, on going sideways, is when egos get involved. Gotta just be careful, right? And, and I think I've learned that the, the art of, of leading leaders, which is different, because you got to observe egos, you got to understand their comfort level, and being very sensitive to that. And and then my team, you know, especially now that they've, you know, we've had some continuity as far as being around for a lot of years, they they understand that, and they know how saying okay. Yes, I report to Frank, but I've got this operating business. I got to work with that president every day. So I got to make him, they've got to make him feel that, that they're there for him and only him, even though they're dealing with several other uh, presidents. It's, it's subtle. Yeah. And, you know, when it gets bigger, it could get tricky. And then one last question on the, on the tactic side. How do you deal with capital? Because I'd imagine you're, you're obviously acquiring companies, you're paying out dividends. Do companies every quarter have to send the, the excess cash flow up to HQ? Or how, how, how closely are you watching where, where the profits are going? Yeah, no, the, the op, I mean, there's different ways to skin those cats and the, to be tax efficient. But for the most part, yeah, like kind of the shareholder agreements almost identical to in all the businesses, and they're all fair to whether you're a majority or, or minority. So there's dividend clauses where okay, we all get dividends unless we all unanimously agree to leave the money in to invest it. So to protect someone to make sure we don't starve them out, those sort of poor stories that I hear. These are the kind of things that where things go sideways. But uh, yeah, no, we like to do annual distributions as kind of the thing after the year ends done. Have a look at the capital requirements. Okay, we're on side. We're good. We have this excess capital. There's no point leaving it in here. If we do need it, we'll just put it back in later. And well, I'm excited to talk to you in a year or two and see kind of what the next evolution is because it looks like you've built a phenomenal company and a phenomenal life for yourself. But as you said, you have options now, and and you and it's up to you to figure out what what the next step is. 
I will. Well, you've inspired me today, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the podcast is called Making It. And Frank, I would, I would think anybody would say that you've definitely made it, but it just goes to show you that wherever you get to in life, there's always a, another level. And, and it just it's yeah. up to you how much freedom you have there. John, my biggest issue is I'm always, I always feel like I don't have enough money. You know, I'm always the guy that everyone look at, some people got to remind me like, you are rich, right? Like, you, like, you know, I'm going to McDonald's and I'm ordering from the value menu. You know, I'm only ordering a Big Mac when it's on sale. Like it's just, it's a, it's a disease. I, I yeah. can't help it. Can't help it. Well, thank you so much, Frank. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, we'll, we'll be watching. Awesome. Thank you so much, John.